Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Death of a sales lady, take three. There were promises made across this desk. I'm sorry, am I talking too loud? I'm sorry. I do that sometimes when I'm stressed. But I put 34 years into this firm, Howard, and now I can't pay my insurance. I probably shouldn't have said that. I mean, there might be other people who put in a lot of time, too, like Dan or, or Emily. I- I'm not really sure how long they've been here, but you can't eat the orange and then throw the peel away. A person is not a piece of fruit. Although I guess, technically speaking, that's what people do. I mean, you know, they, they eat the orange. Nobody really saves the peel. Although you can dry the peel and make nice little sachets to put in your sweater drawer. I bring them into the office around the holidays because, you know, even though we do Secret Santa, what if somebody forgets to get a present? So this way everybody gets something. Excuse me, this is not in the script. None of it. Hey, I'm doing my best up here. I get on that subway on the hot mornings in the summer and I come here for this measly existence and oh god, I did it again. I'm being annoying. Right? I am so, so, so sorry. Is there any way you could hold on to that other feeling longer? Because I think Arthur Miller envisioned... Oh, Arthur Miller, he is such a giant. And I'm screwing up his play, aren't I? I'm such a ditz. I'm really sorry. Let's take ten. Maybe if I listen to this radio show about Arthur Miller, I'll get the hang of this. And now he understudied Winona Ryder in The Crucible, Colin McEnroe. Yes, indeed. Um, And so, yeah, you've probably heard quite a bit about the centenary uh, of Arthur Miller. Uh, Although I think we can give you a show today that you haven't heard, uh, things that you haven't been told about or talked about. Or maybe you were completely unaware of it, too. There's also that possibility. But Arthur Miller, um, really a titan. I mean, it's almost hard to describe this arc, this son uh, of an illiterate Polish immigrant, uh, a family that settles on the Lower East Side, ascends to a point where, at the point when Arthur Miller died, just discovered this. Uh, when Arthur Miller died, it was the lead story. Keep in mind, he's an American playwright. It was the lead story on the BBC that day. There was nothing more important that happened in the world uh, as far as the BBC was concerned. And also in the British newspaper, The Independent, it was the only thing that was on page one. It was, it was sort of that kind of ascendance. It, it's just a completely uh, remarkable story about uh, a playwright who's you know, whose rise and whose preeminence is, I mean, there's only two or three other people you can talk about in the same breath, right? You know, there's Tennessee Williams, there's Eugene O'Neill, that's probably about it. Um, So uh, we're very lucky with the guest that we have here today. Uh, We're very excited to have Mark Lamos back in Hartford. He probably sneaks in and out uh, and we don't know it, but he was, of course, for many years, the artistic director of the Hartford Stage Company, now artistic director of Westport uh, Country Playhouse, uh, a man who worked with uh, Arthur Miller. Uh, He'll be uh, sharing some of his reminiscences with us and also uh, Dr. Susan Abinson, a professor of modern and contemporary drama at the English Department uh, of Rhode Island College, also um, somebody who's written extensively about Arthur Miller. And then a little bit later in the show, towards the end of the show, we're going to tell you a different story. We're going to talk about, obviously, Arthur Miller uh, as uh, a theatrical pl- presence. But here in Connecticut, where he lived really, you know, a huge chunk of his latter life was lived in uh, the Litchfield Hills of Connecticut, where um, twice Once very importantly and very prominently, he became involved in criminal trials uh, where he thought injustice was being done in a way that was not at all um, segregated or... uh, 
different, really, from the kinds of issues that often fueled the moral outrage you see in his plays. So you'll see there's a, a bright line we can draw from the crucible to the cases of Peter Riley and Richard LaPointe, and Donald Connery will be in here to talk about that. Um, so, well, but let's begin with uh, w- with who this man is. And uh, maybe, Mark, what we should do is begin by saying that one of the ways that Westport is celebrating uh, Arthur Miller at age 100 is doing one of his plays, and, and maybe one of the plays people are less likely to know. So tell us about Broken Glass. Broken Glass is a late play. Um, he wrote it in 1994, and um, it is something that was gestating for him for many, many years uh, he he got an idea uh, in 1938 when he himself became uh, obsessed with the fact that Kristallnacht was happening and nobody in America was paying attention. They were all getting over the Depression. And he felt as if there was this sort of paralysis. He started a play and the play was lost. And it was about this – it was about Kristallnacht and sort of Americans turning away from it. Years later – he heard a story about a woman who, for reasons no one knew, suddenly lost the power of walking. She couldn't move her legs. She collapsed. And suddenly this idea fermented for him uh, into broken glass, which is essentially about a woman who is paralyzed from the waist down. She collapses uh, listening to reports of what's going on in, in Nazi Germany. And her husband, she's Jewish, They live in Brooklyn. It's 1938. Her husband, Gelberg, is a really a self-hating Jew. He um, is afraid of the America that he's a part of. He's afraid of persecution. Anti-Semitism at the time was enormous in this country and probably one of the reasons that that this was ignored in Europe. Um, There's even a line in the play about, you know, these anti-Semites in New York here in 1938. We sort of forget about that that might have been the case. The play is a swift sort of uh, thriller about the dissecting of this man and his uh, his feelings about his identity as a Jew and the the relationship he has with this with this woman who is you know a, a great Miller character. They both are. Um, uh, it's it's an examination of a marriage. It's an examination of a country, and it's an examination of of what it means to be a Jew in America. Um, he would have had no illusions about anti-Semitism. Um, in fact, um, he prior, I think, to going to college in Michigan, uh, was uh, working in the auto parts business. and was pretty good at it, and then didn't get a job. I think he'd been working mostly in the Lower East Side, where, in fact, you wouldn't encounter quite as much lower uh, anti-Semitism because that's sort of who was around you. But I think he started to work uptown, and he didn't get a job because he was Jewish. The person who had recommended him for the job said, "Oh, it's because you're a Jew. That's why you didn't get that job." Right, and right. it was kind of a shock to him. I think you know, as a young man, he hadn't quite seen that before. So, um, Sue Abbotson, let's. Uh, 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 try to kick some tripwires here, uh, particularly with uh, some of what Mark's saying, because one of the things that's looked at a lot, lot with Miller is, you know, early in mid-career, um, he sometimes, I, I guess criticized is the right word, um, for 
for not emphasizing Jewish identity, that, you know, uh, when Death of a Salesman came out, he claimed to be kind of agnostic uh, about uh, whether Willie Loman was Jewish or not. Uh, there's a, a line in the play that Mark's directing right now about what happens when Jews try to disappear into the goyim. Uh, but there's certainly a sense among some of the people, some of the scholars and critics who write about him that, you know, in 1947, 1949, he's kind of doing that too, that to have the kind of success he wants to have on Broadway, he can't be strictly a Jewish playwright, so he's not. Well, I mean, that is partly true because, you know, when he, he tried to get a play produced back in the late 30s, one of his student plays, and he basically had the script returned to him saying, we got enough Jewish plays this year, we can't do this one. <laughs> and so I think, you know, for, for some of those early couple of plays, like The Man Who Had All the Luck and All My Sons, he deliberately uh, set them in the Midwest so they couldn't be accused of being Jewish. But even by the time he gets to Death of a Salesman, I mean, if you listen to the idiom of a lot of the characters and the fact that this guy is, you know, a traveling salesman working in textiles, most likely, it's, you know, it, it's hard not to see Willie as a Jewish, as a Jewish salesman, to be honest. Um, I think that's why the production works so successfully in the Yiddish production. They've just opened, they've just reopened another Yiddish production in New York of that. And I hear scholars all the time, oh, well, no. People, when I do talkbacks, they say, oh, Miller didn't recognize his Jewishness. And I kind of, sort of laugh a little because I don't think that's at all true. Um, he wrote a, a book all about anti-Semitism that did very well in the 1940s, 1945. And I think a lot of his plays dealt with his Jewishness. Maybe, maybe they weren't maybe his better known ones. So people look at, you know, they look at the, the, they look at the Crucible, they look at All My Sons, they look at Death of a Salesman, they say, where's the Jewishness? But... He wrote a play set in Auschwitz. He wrote a play in Vichy, France, rounding up the Jews. He had con concentration towers in the, in the background and discussion of the concentration camps and after the fall. And, of course, he had broken glass, too, late career. But he, he wrote a lot about his Jewishness. Um, yes, as you point out, the, the new Yiddish rep is now doing Death of a Salesman uh, in Yiddish. Um, but, you know, Mark, in some ways, it's also true that I mean, I think the first Willie Loman was Lee J. Cobb, uh, and and that there is a way in which Loman does transcend any particular ethnic identity. That you know, I, I think Sue's absolutely right. If you listen to the rhythms, you listen to the speech, you listen to the, the imagery. You know, there's something very Jewish about the whole thing, but there's also something very universal about the whole thing. I mean, we're all kind of Lou, Willie Loman. As we get older, pe fewer and fewer people want the things we have. Yeah, it's true, and we're all we're all also the son of Willie Loman, which is what makes that play so powerful. I mean, even even women feel that. And and women uh, identify, of course, with, with Linda. It's mm -hmm. just it's a it's 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 a play that has become so iconic because partially of of the way Miller has created roles that we just completely identify with. We we, we, we feel we were there once in our lives. You know, um, Sue Abinson, we're sort of doing the uh, the usual unforgivable sin, which is we're fetishizing Death of a Salesman and, and The Crucible, which is more to come about that, I'm I'm sure. But it, it's sort of odd when there's this large canon of work here um, and, and probably under, bubbling underneath those two works. Uh, there's View from the Bridge. There's uh, All My Sons. There are other things that people talk about. But there is a way in which those two Miller works, Death of a Salesman and The Crucible, kind of rise above all the others. They get done more than any other two works. Is that because they're the best or because they kick specific tripwires? I think, I think it's, 
it's kind of an amalgamation of both of those things. Um, they are excellent plays. I mean, I would argue that maybe Death of a Salesman is perhaps the greatest American play, although the O'Neill scholars would probably kick me for that. <laughs> but uh, it, they, I mean, both of them are, even though they're so set in their time, they're both timeless as well, in a way. Um, I think some of his other plays perhaps were more grounded to a particular era. Um, I, you know, I, I think also it's just a case of... Um, they got accepted as great plays early and so tended to be repeated and produced. And, you know, that, that's part of the building of the canon for drama is how often a play gets produced. And, you know, The Crucible is his most produced play, Death of a Salesman, the next. Other plays play wonderfully well. Um, for instance, Broken Glass. I, I saw Mark's production. It's an excellent production. Um, it, that is a great play, and it just doesn't get produced as much. I think if it was produced as much, people would start to maybe notch it up a, f a few steps to be, you know, to, to be online with those other two that everyone knows so well. Mark, you know, you've are, are acted in Miller. You've directed Miller. You knew Miller. You've interviewed Miller. Um, how did he feel about that? Did he feel that there were plays of his that, that were more favored children than the ones that have been embraced by as part of the American canon? He never talked about that. Mm -hmm. He always talked about the, the piece he was working on at the moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was he was completely forward looking all the time. I mean, it was uh, the, the play of his that I was in on Broadway um, was called The Creation of the World and Other Business. It, it was a terrific flop at the time <laughs> and a troubled, troubled, uh, a, a troubled uh, you know, production period beforehand in Boston and, and Washington with actors being fired and the great Harold Clerman was the director and he was let go. It was kind of a shattering um, uh, situation for a young actor to be in, but also kind of exhilarating to be working with Arthur Miller. And then the play I directed of his was his, I think, penultimate work, Susan would know for sure, uh, called Resurrection Blues. I did the second production yep. of that. That's right. Yeah, at uh, San Diego's Old Globe. And he was there working on it the, the entire time, was involved with the casting, uh, the design, all of that. And he was he was just a couple years from um, from dying at that, that point. And that was a great play, too. And I think your production is the best, best, best production it has had. It kind of got killed by the terrible Robert Altman production in London, so no one wants to touch it anymore. Yeah, it's a very interesting play. It's, it's, it's satire. It's furious. It's angry. It's funny. It's uh, it, it's all kinds of things that he's experimenting with. You know, people tend to forget he was experimenting all the time, and he did. You know, I've read places, read interviews with him where he sort of vilifies everybody praising those early plays uh, and and ignoring the late plays, but he kept searching, and that was what was so exciting for him about his reception in England and why he was on the front page of the paper. And why the BBC cared about it more than anything, because in, in, in Great Britain, he's considered, they, they say, um, uh, below God, there's Shakespeare and below Shakespeare, there's Arthur Miller. Wow. The, um, you know, it's interesting, that whole idea of experimenting, uh, Susan Abbotson, because, I mean, Miller's arc is interesting, too. When he comes out of this Michigan program where he's actually, I think, been able to go to college by winning playwriting prizes. That's yep. how he can afford to go to college. N now he wants to be a playwright. He comes back to New York and there's, there really isn't. A whole world of Mark Lemos's and Michael Wilson's <laughs> and people like that who can help him nurture plays around along in, in regional theater or, in, or there isn't off Broadway really the way there is now. Absolutely. There's no barrow time. Yeah, yeah, he just thought he had to make it on Broadway, right. and that's maybe limited 
limited initially, perhaps, but he, he broke through and he managed that route. I think that's a very hard route to do now for, for our upcoming playwrights. But uh, uh, he, he described it as you sort of had to be, you had to spring full grown from the skull of Zeus, basically, or <laughs> not do it. Although I guess he initially got, there were these New Deal programs where you, as a playwright, would basically, you know, I don't know if it was the WPA or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, he was but. in the Federal Theater Project just for a short time uh, working in the radio drama division. And didn't he write a play about Cortez and Montezuma? He did, The Golden Years. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and that, that got sort of it rested. No one did anything with it until England. BBC decided to do a production of it. Right, right. Um, so, Mark, uh, you knew the man. You knew the man socially. I um, mean, this is, uh, we'll talk a little bit about Marilyn Monroe maybe in the next segment, but um, uh, this is a man who had just a remarkable life. Uh, so many things that he did, and and for that matter, his daughter is Lady Day-Lewis now. And um, what kind of man was he? What, I mean, I've you've seen so many interviews with him, uh, but you knew him when the camera was off. What, what kind of guy was this? Uh, incredibly straightforward. Great sense of humor, just an outrageous sense of humor. He could tell a joke better than anybody in the Borscht Belt. I mean, I just was rolling. But he also just spoke intelligently and calmly about just about everything on earth, no matter what it was, from the smallest to the largest. Uh, he was he was just very easy. He wore he wore the the enormity of his fame and his his genius very very lightly. And um, you know, I never felt an ounce of pretension from him. It was always about just getting to the next, getting the next uh, line right, getting the job done, uh, 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 making sure the commas were in the right place. Uh, that sort of thing on the work front. On the social front, just incredibly great to be around. I mean, really, just imagine a dinner party where you have this wise, funny guy, um, and and he's not even monopolizing it. He's just part of it. And it was wonderful to know him, both sort of at the beginning of my life in the theater and at the end of his life in the theater. It was a, a wonderful span, um, and, and it meant a lot to me. All right, we're, gonna, we're talking about Arthur Miller. It's obviously the centenary of his birth. That was last Saturday, if you want to get specific. Um, we'll take a little break here. We're talking to uh, Mark Lemos and uh, Susan Abinson. Uh, we will talk more when we come back. We're talking about Arthur Miller. I should. I want to do an extra extra thank you. You'll hear later in the show to Dan Schultz, who's interning with us here right now and who um, conceived this show and has been working with the gentle shepherdess Lydia Brown uh, on it. But uh, what a great job he's done preparing us for this. So uh, we're talking about Arthur Miller with um, Mark Lemos, artistic director at Westport Country Playhouse, and Susan Abbotson, professor of modern and contemporary drama uh, and English at the English Department of Rhode Island College. So... Um, Susan Abbotson, I want to just talk about, I, I, I don't know, this, I may be forcing something here. That wouldn't be unusual. Uh, but, you know, thinking about Miller today and just reading some of the things that he wrote and said over the years, I feel like I can draw another bright line, one that goes from Arthur Miller to Bernie Sanders. You know, there, <laughs> there's, there's kind of a way in which the, the moral outrage that Miller has mm. about the way things don't work the way they're supposed to work, that the fundamental covenant of Western society and the United States in particular, that that egg is cracked, that there's this kind of Edenic damage to it. Um, mm. it seems, I think that's a great analogy. <laughs> it just, I, I don't know, maybe you can uh, carry it along and m make it sound like I actually uh, yeah, just made sense I mean, of it. You know, there, there is that same sort of authenticity. I mean, Miller 
um, you know, forever he was, you know, hounded as being un-American and all of that, deeply believed in American democracy and the potential and power of American democracy if it, if it, you know, if it was allowed to work as it, as it had been intended. And a lot of his plays are sort of working towards offering remedies for fixing that. And, uh, you know, he's, you know he, all of his plays really are about America, even though they have the universal resonance as well. And, and I think he, you know, he strongly believed that it, I think he did believe it could be fixed. I'm not sure if maybe that belief started to get a little strained towards the end of his life um, as he saw things getting worse. He wrote a wonderful book uh, in, uh, towards the end called, uh, I think it was published in 2001, called Politics and the Art of Acting, mm. where he kind of skewers politicians as the, you know, these terribly... Um, good actors who are really faking it and and in this you you feel that sense of anger about you know, how how politics are kind of twisting what america should be doing in some ways you know mark I, I, great artists tend to have some kind of primal wound and i don't think there's much of a mystery about where his is i think it's the depression and the crash that you know he saw his family first of all lose essentially everything and he saw all around him immigrant jews lose, losing everything immigrant jews who had bet heavily on this dream who really had believed in in this story of upward mobility and in the certainty of upward mobility if they did things right if they played the game well if they were smart about what they did they'd be okay and then they were so fundamentally not okay i think at one point he described there were like five suicides in one block where his family lived that that something profound had been wrested away from people. I don't know. You react to that. I think Arthur felt let down by America. Mm -hmm. He felt let down as a boy when his father fell. You know, I mean, not literally, but Mm -hmm. when when everything about this man that he revered collapsed. And it collapsed in Brooklyn. And it collapsed for him as a Jew, as a young man, as an American. And not to generalize, but I feel like almost everything he wrote after that was an attempt to deal with the the shame he felt, deal with the anger that he felt, deal with the frustration that was around him that you just alluded to of not being able to, you know, the dream was broken, it didn't happen. And then on top of that, to have, to have the Second World War break out and millions of Jews rounded up and slaughtered, um, I think had an indelible influence on on everything about what he wrote about from there on out. You know, we we do have to talk about this a little bit. I mean, really, if you were a person who didn't win all kinds of Pulitzers and Tonys and all you ever really did that was remarkable was Mary, Marilyn Monroe, that would be a, enough for a lot of people. Um, and, 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 you know, if there's another primal wound, um, Susan Abinson, I, I was watching this interview he did with Mike Wallace uh, so long after Marilyn Monroe's death and somewhat later in his life. And at one point, Mike Wallace, who occasionally does have these nice skillful moments as an interviewer, he's talking to Miller about Marilyn Monroe, and he says, your face changes when you talk about her. Mm. And, and Miller kind of bristles a little bit. He says, what do you mean? And, and, and Wallace said, I just mean that this is a hard thing for you, that these were must have been very wonderful times and very difficult times, but your face actually does change. And so I, I just dragged the cursor back, and, and he was absolutely right that Miller's face changed. There was a, a different look, and it, it was probably more parts pain than pleasure, but yeah, maybe both of those— Yeah, primal hurts yeah. in some ways. I mean, yes, I mean, I, I don't think Miller— ever quite got over Marilyn in many ways. Uh, she's a ghost figure that haunts nearly all of his later plays mm-hmm. after her, even though he went on after Marilyn to have a tremendously successful 40-year marriage to the photographer Inga Morath. 
And it was successful because they were just so well suited and she was so good for him. And I think it was noticeable that it wasn't until after Inga unfortunately passed that he actually published that final play where he went back very overtly to Marilyn again in finishing the picture. Yeah, Mark, you were talking during the break about that final play. Say, say something more about it for the listeners. I, yeah. I, I find that play extraordinarily powerful. Arthur invited me to a reading of it in New York uh, with a fantastic cast. You always get a great cast for a reading because <laughs> they only have to rehearse for a day. But Brian Dennehy and Kate Burton and just marvelous people. Tova who played the Paula Strasberg part, but it is actually, it's called Finishing the Picture, Mm -hmm. and I think he was pretty sure this was going to be his last play, Mm -hmm. and Marilyn is in it, and, but brilliantly, I mean, it's just, it's like a, it's it's really a piece of avant-garde theater. The whole first act, everyone is talking about why she won't get out of bed and shoot that day, and in the second act, each of the characters goes into the bedroom. And all you see is this half-naked woman. You see her from the back lying in bed. And they all have these monologues to her that are just extraordinarily powerful, revealing, uh, uh, you know, horrifying, um, sad. And she never says a word. And I think it's one of his greatest plays, and it has roles that are as great as anything he, he wrote. It, it premiered at the Goodman Theater. It, did, again, was dismissed by the New York Times. I read it about a year ago when we were planning Broken Glass, and I was, I was simply overwhelmed by its power. I think it's a great play, and I hope it gets rediscovered someday. So, uh, Sue, we, we might not have said that it's obviously based on the making of the movie The Misfits, in which, you know, uh, there's another thing that goes on there, I think, or I don't know, I'm 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 not the scholar that you guys are, but it seems as though you have these two iconic figures coming together. They've not only come together maritally, but now they've come together artistically. Uh, And and it seems as though Miller writes for Monroe in a way that he almost never has written for a woman before. And that Monroe winds up speaking lines, a kind of line that you've never heard come out of her mouth before. Do we know much about sort of what went on in that artistic uh, collaboration? Um, uh, well, I mean, uh, Malin asked, I mean, she wanted uh, her husband to write a, a good dramatic role for her. Um, and what he wrote for her was basically Marilyn Monroe. Um, I mean, a lot of the ideas, apparently, they read each, other di- each other's diaries. And a lot of the ideas he got, he actually had stolen from her diaries, which is perhaps why it seems so authentic. Um, but she, she really did not like the movie. And she hated the ending where she gets to go off with Clark Gable. Um, and, of course, you know, as soon as, as soon as filming was done, she was on a plane and out of there, I'm divorcing you, Artie. So... It wasn't maybe the most successful collaboration. He wrote it to help the marriage, mm. which is no way to make art. You know, <laughs> I, I love the movie. I have a real, a real passion for that film, and I've watched it a few times. Primarily, the performances are just staggering. Montgomery, it is really interesting. Yeah, Montgomery Clift is wonderful, and mm. she's at her best in, fun, in, in an odd way. Um, yeah, you see her. She's raw. She's open. Absolutely, absolutely. Very, but, yeah, yeah it, it, I think by, by trying to open her up and turn her into dialogue— that that absolutely ended the that absolutely ended the relationship. Yes. Um, there's uh, there's even I think a line in the movie that's a little bit predictive of uh, what Sue was just describing. Monroe, Monroe says something like, uh, "If I'm going to be alone, I like to do it by myself," <laughs> <laughs> which is a great line, <laughs> and of course, kind of presages uh, getting on that plane. You know, yeah, there, there are some great photographs of Inga Marath because she was actually on the set helping oh, wow. do the films there, and she took some great photographs of the couple, and you can just see mm. they they can hardly even look each other in the eye. They're not talking. It, you could see it's a marriage falling apart. 
Um, we don't want to focus too much on movies, Mark. And so you're somebody who's committed your life to theater. And and so I'll just read to you from something that uh, Miller said at one point. He says, I don't think there's anything that approaches the theater. The sheer presence of a living person is always stronger than his image. But there's no reason, reason why TV shouldn't be a terrific medium. He goes on and talks a little bit about why that's uh, not the case. But he says, my feeling is that people in a group en masse watching something react differently and perhaps more profoundly than they do when they're alone in their living rooms. And you could probably extend that uh, a little bit beyond that to, to the movie theater itself because there's something about having the living people up there on the stage. Is there something that Miller has that connects with why you love theater so much? Something that he does as a creator uh, of work on stage that's very special? Well, I'll tell you what I love. Um, I, I, I find the language extremely beautiful. Um, it's not just believable because you have to ferret out why these characters are saying these things to each other. It's not immediately apparent. Um, but the the way he writes the characters, I've done so much Shakespeare and Chekhov and Ibsen and, you know, the, the, it seems the mark of a really great playwright is this a, ability to find a different voice and a different way of making a sentence mm-hmm. for every person he puts on stage. That is no mean feat. And there's a great brilliance about about how he fashions that writing. And to work with him on Resurrection Blues and see how the minutest word change uh, was important to him, uh, you know, just reinforced that. Uh, I find some of the late plays dazzlingly mysterious. And I I love that about his work, that they're open-ended in many ways. Other playwrights, Sue, I, I read Tony Kushner saying somewhere that there's this, he, that Miller somehow or other understood what a scene was and what a scene had to be and how uh, a series of scenes created a theatrical arc um, in a way. Maybe it's something that only playwrights could explain to each other. But I don't know. Do you, do you have sort of a sense of your own as a scholar about what makes him special on stage? Uh, I, mean, to, I mean, to me, he kind of combines the best of all the the playwrights that came before him and surrounded him. I mean, he has that sort of, um, you know, sort of concern with the, with the grand philosophies that O'Neill had. He, he can delve into the individual psyche in the way Williams did. And he has this sort of poetic, sort of ordinary language, but poetic as well that, you know, he got, he got, I think he was inspired by Clifford Odets to write. And he sort of combines all of these and, to, and maybe uses some of even Thornton Wilder's sort of experimentation and throws these together into this wonderful crucible and, and creates, as Mark says, these plays that are just so playable. And so interesting to direct. You know, look at the language of The Crucible where he creates from studying those letters. Uh, Right, Susan? He went to Salem and he did a lot of research. And he then writes. He has the audacity to write uh, (laughs) uh, 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 what he feels is Puritan dialect, sort of. It's stunning. Yeah, he ba- he basically got the ear for that just by literally rereading and rereading the trial records yeah. from the original Salem trials. Um, I'm also wondering what happens to a young Arthur Miller today. I'll read something that he said uh, much earlier. He said the audience for any real theater in New York stays home because the student, the teacher, the serious person of any kind or the joker who likes to see a good play but hasn't got $30, that dates this quote, hasn't got $30 to spend to go out at night with his wife or girlfriend can't come anymore to this arena of the arts and we are left with the expense account people who don't pay for their seats, whose companies give them a certain allowance for playing and 
who are, of course, not in the mood, generally speaking, for anything but a musical or a quick laugh. And as Carl Sandburg once said, great poets need great audiences. We don't have the audience, audience, and we certainly don't have the poets. And so, Mark, that was back when theater tickets were 30 bucks a seat and uh, Disney wasn't involved on Broadway uh, and Sting didn't write musicals. And so, I mean, all the conditions that he's describing have, if anything, intensified. Um, you knew him towards the end of his life. Was he even more concerned about what a young person, the kind of young person that he had once been, would do? Well, they those conditions intensified in one six-block area called Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to say the regional theater movement, which came into Arthur's life rather late, mm-hmm. and which he took full advantage of in his last in his last years. I mean, the Goodman Theater, the Old Globe, the, the Guthrie Theater premiered Resurrection Blues, uh, Long Wharf Theater. Yeah, absolutely. Broken glass at the Long Wharf in New Haven. Uh, it, 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 that has, that's what's changed, and that's where young playwrights can see their work nurtured and where audiences can get affordable tickets, to be honest with you. I mean, you can see Broken Glass for $45, which isn't all that much more than the 30 Arthur was talking about back then. You go to Broadway, and you're paying over $100, $150, 200 to see a 90-minute straight play these days. So Broadway is not that conducive to the young writers, but the rest of the country... 450-plus theaters are, are, you know, giving them places to work. Unfortunately, they do all go to television. All right. So, um, <laughs> uh, by the way, it's 44.50 if you mention this show. <laughs> but um, the um, – so in a way, Sue Abinson, in terms of Broadway, and uh, you know, he hit kind of a sweet spot. Um, in, in, oh, the yeah. way, in the ways that he described, there, there wasn't what Mark just described to nurture a young man like him. But he was, after a few fits and starts, you know, by 47, able to, you know, write this incredible commanding work and then work in a Broadway theater where there was enough robustness so that you you could stage serious dramas you could and and also towards the end you know as he as maybe Broadway didn't work so well for him just the math of Broadway didn't work so well he had this other playground to experiment in in a way that might even be equally true if not truer to his own instincts maybe you can say something about that well i mean i think uh you know, it's just the nature of the, the way in which theater is changing in the country and the audiences are changing in theaters. I mean, I, I think regional theater is definitely doing a great service to the country at the moment. Um, I, every production I go to see is one. I feel I, I'm in awe of what they're managing to produce. And uh, I think I think actually Miller might have been very excited by some of the new technology that's coming through. Um, I've been uh, going to see a lot of these plays, you know, the NT Live, where they screen a live production straight to the local cinema. And that is something I've noticed younger people are going to see because they can get in to see, you know, a, a, a big-name actors and big-name plays at the local movie theater. And it's, you know, $18, $20 a ticket, which is very affordable. It's not quite the same as being in a live theater, but maybe it gives them a taste, and then that will hopefully lead them into actually going into the doors of a real theater. It's a great point, actually. I should, this is a good moment for a plug, then. I believe it's this Sunday that Trinity, Trinity College, Trinity Cine Studio, which has the best school screen around uh, will be rescreening the Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch Hamlet. Which is wonderful. I saw it on the 15th with my son. It was really great. Yeah, that was the live version was the, uh, on the 15th, but mm-hmm. it's just as good. You know, I mean, you, you won't oh, be absolutely. able to tell. <laughs> All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. Uh, we're going to talk more Arthur Miller when we come back. Uh, we're going to add another voice to this conversation. Uh, we're going to talk about a part of Arthur Miller that we haven't mentioned so far.
don't know much about Arthur Miller, but I'm a big fan of his brother Herman's chairs. Today's show was produced by Dan Schultz, Lydia Brown, and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns today are Nate Gagnon and Zachary LaSala. The part of Bill Curry was played by George Siegel. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making fondue in a crucible, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, our salute to bedbugs. And now... Back to Colin. Yes, we're going to be talking about bedbugs, their history, their habits. There will be bedbugs here in the studio, carefully controlled and maintained by an actual uh, entomologist. So uh, we'll also be talking about other kinds of creepy crawly things, especially something called super lice, which I'm disturbed to find out even exists. They really shouldn't. I mean, lice are enough. We don't need super lice. But anyway, we'll also talk to a person who's actually a professional nitpicker. Believe it or not, there are such things. Uh, So get scratching already. I mean, you're going to have all kinds of... Uh, strange symptoms. Well, right now we're talking about Arthur Miller, uh, Broken Glass by Arthur Miller, directed by Mark Lamus, who's in studio, is playing at the Westport Country Playhouse now through uh, October 24th. Um, boy, that's not long. People have to hurry up and get their tickets. They do. Um, and uh, and also with us is uh, Dr. Susan Abbotson. Uh, she is a professor of modern and contemporary drama at Rhode Island College, uh, author of a critical work about uh, uh, critical works about Arthur Miller. Um, and now coming to studio because there's another part of all this, and it really ties in. Uh, it, it's not a separate part of Arthur Miller. Really, Miller. It really ties into his work and his thinking. Uh, I was reminded of this today when I was reading uh, a, a collection edited by our guest. Uh, Donald Connery is here. He's the author of Guilty Until Proven Innocent, uh, a book about the Peter Riley murder case, but also the editor of Convict- Con- Convicting the Innocent, uh, in which there's a, a piece uh, by Arthur Miller. I mean, it may have been a speech that he gave or something, but it's a uh, Boy, it really just sort of explains all the connections between the Peter Riley case, the Richard Lapointe case, and the kind of moral outrage that fueled a play like The Crucible. It's all uh, tied together in an interesting way. But first of all, Donald Connery, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I've been reading your work for many, many years. It's great to have you here. Uh, and so back in 1973, there was a terrible rape and murder uh, in Falls Village, Connecticut. Uh, it was uh, a woman 51 years old, I think. Her name was Barbara Gibbons. Uh, and the person who was singled out as a suspect was uh, her, her son, Peter Riley. Uh, a confession of some kind was obtained by the state police. Uh, but a lot of people began to rally around his cause and begin to believe that there was something wrong with this whole scenario or perhaps many things wrong with this whole scenario. And one of the key people who got involved was Arthur Miller. Um, so h- how did that happen? How did Arthur Miller find himself uh, at the side of this uh, troubled young man? Well, Falls Village uh, is in northwest Connecticut, Litchfield Hills, and uh, that is what's called the Canaan area. And Roxbury, where Miller Miller lived, was a half-an-hour drive uh, below uh, south. And um, Joan Barthel, who had been a colleague of mine at Life magazine, had a uh, summer house, small one, in uh, Falls Village area. And she was astonished that uh, Peter Riley had uh, had been... uh, arrested and convicted. The point, the big point about his case is that uh, uh, when he came home from a church meeting and found uh, his mother's uh, body uh, as she was uh, dying for her last uh, breaths and she had been savagely attacked and almost beheaded and stabbed and stomped, he went straight to the phone for the, for the police and the ambulance. And within 24 hours, they had his full confession on, on not only on tape but signed and within five, five or six months, he was uh, brought to trial and convicted and sent to prison for manslaughter. 
And all of this, uh, you know, amazed uh, Joan and and the rest of us who lived in that area. She contacted uh, both Arthur Miller and uh, William Styron, neighbors in Roxbury. Uh, both became involved in the case, but Miller became the uh, the vital center of the or the linchpin of of the Peter Riley defense. Uh, I'll go on if you want. Well, I mean, I think uh, I know from your book that Miller was really the one who thought that Peter Riley needed a special kind of defense counsel, and Miller decided he was going to get Peter Riley, Riley a lawyer, and that's what he did. Well, it it, it was an amazing. Uh, after all, we, uh, we this is the author of uh, the the Crucible, twenty or so people uh, uh, wrongly accused uh, uh, centuries earlier. So he rose to the challenge uh, magnificently. He he uh, used his influence to get a a, a new attorney, um, Roy Daly, who later became a federal judge, and a private detective, retired New York City cop, as well as the psychiatrist and the world's leading forensic scientist. And and with this array of new talent, uh, they they, uh, they they turned the case uh, around, and it all happened very swiftly. Uh, uh, within four years, Peter was exonerated. Miller was not just someone, you know, uh, raising money or picking up the telephone. He was actively investigating, satisfied himself, <clears throat> and remained involved. And I attended a number uh, of the sessions with the attorneys and the detect- detective and, and so on. So I was sort of a fly on the wall as I was writing a book on the case. Um, we've got a call here from uh, Guy Wolf in Litchfield. There's two different Guy Wolfs. This is the one who's not a prosecutor, oddly enough. Um, so, uh, hi, Guy Wolf. You're on the air. Hey, uh, I I couldn't not call in on this one just because there's uh, there's so many interesting sort of family memories on it all. Um, I can't remember the who called my dad, but my father was an abstract expressionist. Uh, there was this wonderful community of sort of liberal interested people that felt obligated uh, to jump in uh, when things were going on. And somebody called my dad uh, and, and said that this kid had just, um, uh, you know, uh, said yes or that he had done this and that they'd sort of, uh, it was a complicated situation that didn't make any sense and uh, that quickly we needed to get uh, some money together to get him some kind of a, uh, a lawyer, and the well, the Calders and Arthur Miller were uh, both sort of family friends uh, in in this area here in Litchfield, and the Calders were away in France. So Dad's first call was to Arthur, and um, uh, as your guest there said, he he jumped in with both feet. Um, and I think the only other thing I can sort of add is since you're you're going to be talking about the Crucible, um, as uh, a young kid, I was around those parties at the Calders that, uh, where he kind of uh, would loosen up and start to talk about being brought before McCarthy, and all of this, every everything that um, he would that that pushed him forward in the in the things that he did, were uh, from the feeling that he had from being um, 
well wronged and mm-hmm. and put in front of uh, this horrible situation with McCarthy. Yeah, and I, that's I'm, I'm so glad you, you led us there, guy. I was going to take us there anyway, but you're, I the, agree, but totally. you're the perfect conduit. Well, you know, so maybe Sue Abinson, I want to sw- swing back to you for a second here. You know, we talked about sort of primal wounds and pri- primal experiences for Arthur Miller. We didn't talk about this one that his friends, men that he admired, first of all, came before the House on American. Oh Next. yes, Kazan was like a brother to him. He was very, very. Uh, upset when Kazan named names. And uh, to be honest, I don't think, uh, had, if Miller had not married Marilyn Monroe, I don't know if they, he would ever have been brought up in front of HUAC. It was kind of the being brought back into the, into the public spotlight through his marriage that made them decide to come after him because they were really more interested in people in film than theater. Um, but yes, he was very, I mean, I think he was very, not only, you know, they found, they found him, they find him and they, you know, and they, and they gave him a probation period, but then eventually he was exonerated. But he was still quite a few, quite a few thousand dollars out of pocket for court costs, and he kind of, kind of was always that always kind of grated with him a little bit, I think. Yeah, and Mark, as I keep saying off the air, this the story that Donald Connery is telling right now is part and parcel of the work that Miller did, right? That I mean, The Crucible in particular is um, a play about the perversion of the notion of confession. Yes, it was a reaction to the to the HUAC hearings, and um, it 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 you know it it defines exactly what was going on in America, but what in troublingly continues to go on in America, as as you can see from Donald's book. I mean, it's it's. There is so much misaccusation, so much nowadays, I think, with with the, you know, this information overload. We're, we're, we're making decisions about things of people being right or wrong or guilty or conservative or liberal without really knowing much. Um, we get a lot of newsprint. We get a lot of we get a lot of Internet, everything 24-7. But we really know, I think, less and become more confused and angry somehow because of it. Well, on the other hand, the one thing we do know uh, now that we didn't know in the time of the Riley case in the mid-1970s, which was followed a decade later by the DNA revolution, I think the public as a whole is well aware of the fact that there are thousands, actually tens of thousands of people in prison uh, who are wrongly convicted, and they now understand that false confessions happen. There used to be total denial by the police and prosecutors, the, 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 uh, so there's an awareness because of all the exonerations. But nonetheless, we have continuing cases of built on, on false confessions. And the Richard LaPointe case followed in Connecticut a decade after uh, Peter, and Arthur Miller jumped into that and did a great deal to draw attention to Richard LaPointe's uh, plight as a, as a uh, mentally uh, disabled man, physically disabled, who then... Uh, spent 26 years in prison until uh, last October 2nd. Right. And so, Donald, I mean, uh, if uh, people do one or two or three things after this show, well, first of all, they have to get their tickets to go see a Mark's play at Westport Country Playhouse. Um, I would recommend listening to this uh, BBC uh, special that they did last weekend. I think it's called Attention Must Be Paid. Uh, It's remarkable. It's one of the best things about Arthur Miller that I've heard or seen uh, while getting ready for this show. But people want to get a hold of this book, Convicting the Innocent, uh, that Donald uh, edited, because Miller's piece in there about the LaPointe case and the Riley case, it lays out the argument that we're making right here 
typically uh, for Miller, as lucidly and brilliantly as it can be laid out. And one of the points that he makes is that really all a confession is is one moment for one moment, you have to convince someone vulnerable and malleable and less powerful than you that the outcome of their confessing to something would be better for them than the outcome of not confessing. Well said. Mm. And we see that wonderfully played out in the agonies of John Proctor in The Crucible. Yeah. And, and Donald, another thing that he says that's very interesting is that, uh, and, and I wouldn't have thought to say it this way, but maybe you can comment on it a little bit more, that really the worse the evidence is, the flimsier the evidence, the more you need the confession, the more authorities need to get that confession. Well, absolutely. And you need a brilliant prosecutor to, uh, the old line from Texas is it takes a good prosecutor to convict a guilty man and a great prosecutor to convict an innocent man. Um, I thought another thing that in your book that was interesting, and it kind of you know will go, it'll it'll resonate with Mark and with Sue, is um, I, the way in which when, when the, one thing that comes through from the, in the first book is that Miller saw Peter Riley in an interesting way too. That he wasn't just simply this kind of pawn in the system. That that there was kind of a, a way in which um, he, Peter Riley himself had been beaten down by life or emptied out by life. And there's this remarkable moment in your book where the private detective you mentioned is, I think, complaining that Peter Riley never says thank you to anybody. He doesn't yeah, thank, yeah. thank uh, Gilroy Daly. He doesn't thank anybody. And Miller says to, for him to be able to say, I thank you, there would have to be an I, and he doesn't really have well, that. Uh, I don't know, can you yeah. elaborate on that at all? I mean, how did Miller see Well, uh, the, one of the finer examples of, of uh, Peter's, uh, Peter is a very intelligent uh, young man, was then, he's now 60 years old, mm-hmm. and we're in constant contact but um, he had a very low self-esteem because he had never known his father. And his, his mother was a, a difficult alcoholic. But when uh, uh, there came a point when uh, Arthur Miller and, the, and Roy Daly, the lawyer, and then the detective, they were all in the same room down in Fairfield talking case strategy. And uh, one of them looked around and said, there's another person in this room. Oh, yeah, it's Peter out there in the corner. You know, like the eye of a hurricane, everything swirling around him, and he had, you know, nothing to say. Yeah, they had barely noticed him. All right, we're going to have to stop there. What a show. Thanks to Dan Schultz, and thank you so much, Mark Lamos, for making the drive from Westport. Donald Connery for coming in as well. Sue uh, Abbotson, so lucky to talk to you as well. And obviously go to Westport Country Playhouse right now. See that play as fast as you can. Uh, listen to that BBC thing, too. I think it is called Attention Must Be Paid. And, of course, Donald Connery's books are Convicting the Innocent. That's the one where he's edited a lot of statements about the LaPointe case and others like it, and Guilty Until Proven Innocent. That's his book about the Peter Riley case. Thanks to all of you for listening. And did I already say thanks to Dan Schultz and the shepherdess Lydia Brown for pulling this all together? Okay, let's put in an order for the Arthur Miller chair in. Huh. The only color option they have for that one is true blonde. I'll take two.